You may be the first president in history to go down because you can't stop inappropriately talking about an investigation. I can definitively say the president's not a liar. And I think it's uh, frankly insulting that that question would be asked. Up to now, we have no profiles in courage among the Republicans. Somebody really speaking out saying Trump is bad for the country. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Trumpcast Book Club. I'm Jacob Weisberg, and I'm here with Philip Gurevich of The New Yorker and the author Katie Royfe. Welcome back, guys. Thank you. Good to see you. So this month, we have chosen a novel called Submission by the French writer Michel Welbeck. Just to get started, how did you guys like it? I, I, I feel I liked it more than um, Philip liked it. It's a page turner. It's fascinating. I think this is the kind of book, Jacob and I were talking about this earlier, we were cheating, where you kind of resist it, like you don't want to like it, you kind of hate it, and there's a lot that's sort of like contemptible about it, but you end up being super absorbed. Yeah, I, I mean, kind of he... had the opposite feeling. I loved the I just like went roaring into it. I had a great time. I laughed out loud repeatedly during the early parts. I think Welbeck's always sort of perverse and brilliant in at least equal doses, but but kind of dazzlingly funny and just blunt and bizarre. And I thought some of the satire or parody of just manners more than of uh, politics, although it goes there, was great. And then, frankly, it became a boring novel of ideas where people are just hammering out ideologies and like quoting Nietzsche and quoting this one and quoting that one and arguing whole swaths of history in extremely condensed Western Civ 101 or kind of way. And I I lost – the plot. Well, no, no writer tries harder to make himself detestable than Welbeck. <laughs> I mean, even down to just looking as physically repulsive as possible. And then his books I find so readable and compelling. You sort of, it's a, it's an odd dynamic where you you know you don't like this guy, but he just carries you along. Which, and I think even this character, Francois, who's this kind of disenchanted academic who's both like just disgusting in so many ways, but also mesmerizing in so many ways. And and I, especially in his, the way in which he folds the politics for me with his kind of like despair, this this really over the top French kind of ennui with life. And um, it is just kind of brilliant and dazzling and comically great, I thought. So let's just get located a little bit in the book. Philip, it's, it's 2022. We're in France. There's an election taking place, and it's a kind of political dystopian novel. What, what's happening in this future world Welbeck imagines? Um, something not unlike happened here last year, which is that the two longtime center parties completely collapse, and one of them is taken over by uh, another. That's what happened here. Here you have the longtime parties of the Fifth Republic, the socialists on the left and the sort of Sarkozy uh, Republican right both collapsing and it, and they're being they're being replaced by the National Front and everybody thinks the National Front's going to win and the Muslim Brotherhood which is not exactly the Egyptian Muslim Brotherhood but it's a version of it's an Islamist uh, Islam, party Islamist sort of a much more like a Turkish Erdogan like party that's risen up in the country and uh, as they get to the sec- and they both by you know the French electoral system is set up so that you have two rounds. You have a sort of elimination round where all the different parties, including many smaller parties, can come in. And then you have two parties that make it. That's how come there have been these two dominant parties for so long in French politics. The Trotskyites and the Le Penists might make 10, 15, even 25 percent with Le Pen, but never really catch up. And here, they've been eliminated. So you have a runoff uh, between the Muslim Brotherhood 
and Le Pen. And part of the the joke, as it were, uh, that Welbeck's making is that the horror of Le Pen drives all the other parties uh, to make an alliance with the uh, Muslim Brotherhood, which means like, we'd rather give up Western civilization than <laughs> side with the ugly side of Western civilization. It's kind of how he's framing it. Right. So there's this sort of capitulation, this sort of submission to this fairly liberal-seeming Islamic government and this Muslim politician who presents himself as somebody you can do business with. And then suddenly, France pretty much overnight is suddenly women aren't wearing skirts anymore and uh, people are converting to Islam and people who, yeah, they're losing their jobs and uh, men who have to convert to Islam to keep their jobs. And there's this combination of kind of extreme things happening, but in this sort of understated way. It's not so understated, in fact. I mean, he's a university professor, the main character, and all the women uh, are fired at once, um, and they're told to stay home. They're given fantastic subsidies because the Saudis are behind all of this uh, with with bankrolling it. And um, the men are all showing up with uh, teenage second and third wives in really nice apartments, and he gets a payoff pension that's twice what he, or roughly what he was making for being employed. And he thinks, huh, the Saudis actually think that intellectuals or university professors can still be a thorn in their side. They're paying us off quite a bit of nice hush money here. And um, so people are retiring all over the place. And it's it's quite quite a change. It becomes the, the Islamic University of Paris Sorbonne right. uh, is the name of the institution. So, Katie, is this novel a kind of warning about what could happen if the, if Muslim politics becomes dominant in the West? I mean, the, there's a sort of facile reading of it or probably an assumption about it by people who haven't read it that this is a kind of right-wing conservative case warning against Muslim takeover. I just don't can't see it like that. I don't know what you thought. I um, didn't. I didn't read it like that either. But so yeah, I. I mean, because the the thing that's quite well done is that he makes this transformation seem plausible. Um, so it's kind of as as Philip said it, but I mean, it's extreme, but it's also sort of like step by step in a way. And at the center is education because. They sort of take away money for public education and all of this money is, you know, all of a sudden everybody's – they kind of make everybody think, oh, well, religion is good and we respect your religion. But actually you kind of fold into our religion. And and it's kind of a um, a brilliant sort of step-by-step way in, to, to kind of document this total transformation. And I guess I don't see it as being about the rise of Islam in the West, but I do see it as about – how fragile our systems are, you know, that these things we take for granted about the way things are and kind of our Western values and our, you know, these values that we sort of assume are are kind of bedrock are so quickly kind of and politically changed and erased and written over. And that, that I think, was a kind of larger message I took. As a story, it was a lot like The Handmaid's Tale, which yeah. we just read. I mean, to- tonally very different, but it's the same thing. There's an election and suddenly everything's different right. and women are being repressed and, and you, you're live in, I mean, living it, in this topsy-turvy world. It's somewhere between The Handmaid's Tale and The Plot Against America. And, right. and of course, mm-hmm. by, by making it in the future, it becomes dystopian. Uh, automatically, almost, and uh, whereas Roth, by looking backwards with this kind of narrative that he created, it, I mean, these are two books we've read before in the book club, so the, the, the Roth uh, sort of ends up being a bullet dodged, right? We, we get very close to a, a terrible moment with Lindbergh, and things get very ugly, 
but the system writes itself, and that becomes a bracketed uh, story, as in fact happens in The Handmaid's Tale. There's this uh, coda to The Handmaid's Tale where academics are sitting around discussing the Gileadan period, which is the period the story is supposed to have taken place in. Whereas here, you're really being told, I don't know if it's a, um, a warning against Islam so much as it is, it takes as a given the kind of failure of the West, modern Western humanist society to be a viable society, both mm-hmm. in a kind of Darwinian sense, like it does not reproduce itself, which is true in France. France has had less than zero uh, population growth since the beginning of the 1900s, since the start of the 20th century. So it's depended heavily on uh, migration mm-hmm. first from Poland and Italy and so forth, not just uh, the North African uh, migration that is much more uh, on everybody's mind these days. But it was uh, a country where, you know, that question, what do we do with a, a bourgeois life where everybody sort of has it pretty good and you've got secularism encoded in the constitution, laicite as they call it. And, and, uh, and it's just it, – it, it doesn't give people a reason to live. And he being um, Welbeck sort of uh, character um, is sort of somewhere between the total unsentimental hmm. blankness of the narrator and the stranger – Mm. By Camus, right, which starts yesterday. My mother died, or maybe it was the day before. You know, this kind of like whatever. And, and there's his, an echo of his this mother here dies. too. His mother dies, yeah. and he doesn't. And bother he really to doesn't care. Barely bothers to open the letter. He, yeah. he like yeah. gets this letter that tells him yeah. that, and he's like, "Huh, you know, yeah. what about that? I had a mother." Yeah. And um, and so there are these kind of echoes of that, but there's also this echo of the whole existential thing about suicide, right? He's always thinking like, "What is my reason to live?" And he says, "Bourgeois society, your reason to live is marriage, because once you're no longer really interestingly." A, a young sexual animal, hmm. uh, then you basically, and this is where it gets funny also, you sort of like have food and like cuddling, you know, with your with your longtime spouse who you've sort of resigned yourself to and maybe actually become one flesh, as they say. And he's hilarious on gastronomy. Yeah, he's always talking like, about food and alcohol and he's drinking yeah, more he's, and more as the novel goes on. And yeah. part of it is if the, by the amounts he drinks, he's just a complete lush all the time. Well, at one point he managed to get six full glasses out of a bottle of wine. So that was interesting. <laughs> but. But I also – I just think it's very interesting to have this, this like radical shift told by this character and it's very different from The Handmaid's Tale or Plot Against America who is so depressive – who is so kind of like dark, who's kind of like doesn't really care very much. So you get the sense the world is like barely intruding. You know, he like he thinks everything is pointless and falling apart anyway. So this larger kind of the world falling apart is almost a sort of side thing that he's observing. And I think that position for a narrator and that to write from that space is quite interesting, both in terms of the comedy, but also in terms of What's happening? He he also had this line I, I thought was really strikingly relevant to our world. At one point, he sort of finally observed, you know, it's kind of dawning on him what's going on. And he said, it may well be impossible for people who have lived and prospered under a given social system to imagine the point of view of those who feels it offers them nothing and can contemplate its destruction without any particular dismay. Yes, I noticed that line too. Yeah, it really yeah. leapt out at me because it kind of does... And, you know, he's sort of so kind of disenchanted with everything, as Philip said. He's like sort of kind of wanting to commit suicide, but like not even having the energy for it. But he's also, I mean, to say that he's not interested in anything is not quite right because he is, in fact, more passionate than most uh, characters in fiction Mm. about some things. He cares enormously about his subject, which is the writer Huismans, who is this decadent writer of 
became a Catholic convert, and he's he says he's sort of done with his scholarship, but he keeps actually pursuing it, and he actually attains greater and greater heights, uh, according to the, his narrative through the thing. When he's when the revolution or the takeover happens of the university, where does he flee? He flees to the like monastery where Hoistmans was like, mm. uh, you know went to convert and tries to imagine himself back into that. He's obsessed with architecture. He's a keen observer of all kinds of, I mean, he's, it's definitely one of the funnier academic satires I've ever read. And I know that many people find those endlessly entertaining. I usually don't. I thought this was pretty good. This was a good one. He likes um, sex. Uh, he likes he, he likes sex in a kind of mechanical, mechanical way. necessary way. way. I mean, it's a pretty porny relation to sex, but pretty he also – Well, it's very similar to the food. I mean, he talks about the food and the sex almost in exactly the same yeah. way, which is a lot of detail and some relish from time to time, but no sort of mystical he transport. He likes food better. Yeah. I mean, he's often <laughs> – As like, he this... gets older, he's more interested well, in food. Well, as he says about one of – at the central love interest, he's like, I could sort of take her or leave her at some point. Like, she, she sort of – is she's kind of asked like, "Am I replaceable?" And he's kind of he thinks to himself, "Yes," though he doesn't actually say it. Because he's also not. I mean, the important thing is that he's basically misogynistic from the get go. He has no interest in the women as anything but sexual vehicles for him. Um, he has a colleague whom he thinks highly of, who's a woman, but. As soon as they meet for a social occasion, he spends the entire time talking to the husband and she cooks. Hmm. Um, and, and she, of course, they're now in the countryside, so she's cooking the exact regional cuisine. He's obsessed with this also. The, <laughs> it's like the micronationalisms. Like he's interested in these micro yeah. – there are a lot of food jokes in here. Um, and every time he has a woman over to the apartment, he's having like some other – immigrant food, right? It's sushi or it's, I mean, like you're in Paris and you're having sushi or meze or uh, he has, I can't remember what the other one is, that he's getting a bunch of food from uh, all these, a Thai place or something. He's always, you know, making Oh, he makes Indian dinners. He makes his frozen Indian dinners. He's got this kind of... Well, he has sort of the depressing food he eats at home when he's, you know, watching TV and from cooking with the microwave and then he, but then when he gets a real meal, he really, he really savors it. He really does. And he likes his food. And, uh, but the thing about this character is that he's he's empty because there is no spiritual connection in his life. And he's had it at one point, and it's around literature. It's around this writer, Hoisman. And he says, you know, this was the time that he was able to achieve this connection of souls across time because he so inhabits Hoisman's mind and experiences. And he looks for it in a way in this casual way again, and he almost achieves it around Catholicism when he goes to this shrine of the Black Virgin and spends every day for a month sort of meditating in front of this medieval Christian icon. But then he so that doesn't work for him. He walks out to the parking lot and loses interest. He tries to go to the Hoisman's monastery. That only lasts a couple of days. And then, you know, he gives up but converts to Islam in the end because it sort of offers the alternative to finding a real spiritual connection. It's because interesting. He's going to get three good wives. Right. Three I mean, young it's, wives, but it's, that's a, it, why. it's a transaction. It's a bargain with Islam. It's not that he's come around to accepting it as a, as a as a philosophical religion or a religious commitment. It's just it's a pretty good deal. He gets a fat raise and three wives. He says it's a working civilization. I mean, he does make a lot of references too to the idea that this Islamist Ben Abbas, who's won the election in France, 
has a kind of fantasy of reconstituting the whole Roman Empire, but as an Islamic empire uh, across Europe. So, you know, in the early months of the thing, you've got Tunisia and Morocco and Algeria joining the EU and Egypt and Lebanon in talks. Yeah. By the end, Syria and I forget where else are in talks. You know, I mean, it becomes it becomes almost comical, like in the background, another, you know, whole block of non-European countries are becoming European countries because it's this really Islamic empire. But he's also really interested in the idea like, look, the period since the French Revolution to now, which he's counting as the collapse of it, was pretty brief compared to civilizations that have actually provided a working system for people for 800, 1,000 years. The medieval period he sort of sees as having been actually longer-lived system uh, that worked as a civilization for a while. So he has this idea, or this narrator has this idea running through it, that you know civilizations come and go. And you'd be foolish not to look at the bargains of them. And sure, it ain't a good deal for women, but I'm not one. I mean, that's well, honestly the, the what The other thing saying. that's great is that the new head of the university, who's kind of pandering and very involved with the, this, like, Muslim world, you know, powership, leadership, uh, writes this book, um, which is a giant bestseller, which is basically— Islam for dummies. Yeah, Islam for dummies, but it's also like a bourgeois fantasy of what Islam is. And it's kind of brilliant because it it sort of is a way of packaging some pretty challenging material as kind of like lifestyle, you know, and bourgeois. Halal foods like organic food. Exactly, halal foods like organic food. And then, you know, it ends up being one thing that draws him into it is this idea of the three wives or the nice house or, you know, the, the way that they've set it up. So it's kind of all packaged, you know, in this kind of unthreatening, like, ch- and, and the head of the university is also very charming and kind of civilized. And so it ends up that we kind of get this image of how actually something that might seem unthinkable becomes thinkable. But here's a, something I was thinking about reading the book, and I think it's the place where it, it, it doesn't resonate with me. And it's something that is, I think, in Welbeck's other books I've read. It's this idea that secular liberalism and humanism are these is a weak passive force that's a default worldview that nobody really cares about very much and is ready to capitulate or submit to stronger religious or extremist forces and to our theme of Donald Trump I don't think that's what we've seen in this country since the election of Donald Trump or around the election of Trump I think we've seen a reaction by by people who have a strongly felt, deeply held philosophical views around secularism and liberalism, who recognizing the threat to things they thought were common assumptions are reacting very strongly. And I wonder if that's something that feels different in France or if you sort of, sort of disagree with my with my disagreement with him. Well, I think it's set up differently in this book. In other words, Trump has attacked the liberal humanist world very hard. He's taking everything away. This Ben Abbas comes along and pays the university professors double. Mm-hmm. He gives them more. He gives them. He spoils them. He woos but them. But they're he all fired. Them. I mean, they know they're under attack, and obviously, but the he rights gets of every, everything. For more. Half the population is under attack. I mean, they have to, you know, dress. They can't work mm. anymore, and they have to. Dress. I mean, clearly, this is. But they get subsidized by the state, so they're okay. I also think that Donald Trump represents a belief system much more than a, you know, what he's saying is the susceptibility to belief. 
um, I think that you do see that. You know, you're not you're not getting it on the basis that he's rationally serving your interests for most of the non billionaire uh, supporters of his, who we know are going to get you know have their health care taken away uh, if he has his way in exchange for private plane write offs on your tax forms if he has his way. Well, the, the, so there's the, a kind of there's a kind of I think he's I think he's wrong about it. I think he's exaggerating, but I also think it's something that the novel's always done, which is. The history of like the novel in the 19th and 20th century, but especially 19th century French literature, is to point out the hypocrisies of bourgeois society. That's its obsession. It's not to say it's a bad idea, and it's not to say it doesn't generate all this great art that it loves. But it says they're hypocrites, and they're and they're and they're weak, and they would cave in in a minute, and they're corrupt, and they would go with whoever is going to buy them. Yeah, and especially if we look at how sort of like Ryan or you know how, how what we think of as like. Even if they're awful, we think of them as having certain, like, values that they would cave in one second. The kind of what power of political compromise in the face of a very extreme figure. Yeah. Where what is extreme, there are people who we think of as kind of political establishment figures who are in one second willing to give up, like, go very far into something that is not normal and is extreme and pretend that it's just totally fine. And we've seen that. And and there is that actually a figure in here, in here yeah. where there's a figure who's kind of, right. Where, where what we see is these compromises being made or they're, they're politics. It's just politics as usual. You know, people are compromising. But what's being given away and what's being sacrificed and what's being lost is enormous. And the stakes are very high. And I think we see it. I mean, Philip's right. It's it's obviously exaggerated in this book. but I, But I feel like there was something kind of familiar to me as I was reading it, a little like, you know, kind of chill feeling of there. there's something that I can see happening now. Well, the sort of Vichy moment, right, mm-hmm. when you see, you know, people who you thought had some principle, when you see them serially cave to power and to their own opportunities and put, put their there's own— There's no question right. that they won the election. That's the other thing. Like that's not, he doesn't set it up in a way that like it seems like a stolen election no. or right. a, a rigged election or in any way. It's kind of like— Fair and square, uh, mm. they won. They they got through the first round and made the deal, and the center and left left and right parties got behind them. the The other thing that's interesting is that a couple of these characters who you see as you could see as the capitulators or the compromisers are are people who are quite political and who early on in their careers had started out sort of abandoning humanist liberal democracy for a kind of nativism. Mm. So they start by going back to some search for their roots. And and the way it's set up in the in the book, as the center parties disappear and the National Front and the Brotherhood become the Muslim Brotherhood become the new center, there are these two other extremes, the nativists and the jihadis. And the Muslim Brotherhood people have no problem with these nativist backgrounds because they say, well, of course you'd look to your own kind and your own roots to find identity when you're really up against it. And then you realize that that was a weak identity and you turn to us. Welcome. Yeah. Uh, you know, please come yeah. on in and have a wife. Um, you know, it's <laughs> it's like the next stage is Donald Trump makes a big deal with Saudi Arabia and, you know, yeah. says, actually, we're on the same page about a lot of things. Yeah, we 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 agree about polygamy. Um, yeah, but that would never happen. But, uh, or, or Bernie Sanders or, you know, the, you see it sometimes happening a little bit. And he also sets up something interesting in the book. He sort of – a lot of these same academics around him, early in the book when you're not quite sure how it's going to 
you, you, I mean, mo- I don't think most people pick up this book without knowing that the basic idea is this is about the Muslim takeover of France. But beyond that, you don't yeah. really know how it's going to play. And there are a number of little references to people who have all been happy to sell out Israel or to join the mm. boycott against Israel or to do this right. and that. Not particularly because they're passionate about the issue, but because it's politic, because it's a good way of keeping their university funded, because it's this, because it's that. And so you also see that there have been these increments of movement towards like this is where our bread's getting buttered this is where our interests lie this is something we never cared that much about or anyway the reasons that our parents cared about it we don't care about it and so i think what he's saying is people are pretty uh, capricious and dangerous and adaptable and you know mm. you can you can see that as a good thing or a bad thing our adaptability at different times but he certainly show- and, and he doesn't condemn islam I mean, there's no con- condemnation. To say it's a warning about Islam, in many ways, it's sort of saying, why would that? Why is everybody so afraid? It's a warning that Islam might be more appealing than what we've got. Yes, it's a yes. warning that they might <laughs> offer a better alternative. He's saying they, the reason that they're a major force right now, and he's coming at it as like this is a Catholic narrative and a, ca- a narrator writing about Catholic writers and the history of Catholic literature in France and the right. And he's saying it's because they're meeting the needs of people. Societies have needs that they address. They have a kind of coherent system put together. And it's got its trade-offs like all people have their trade-offs. And that's what he's trying to show as a mechanism and that it's not so alien. It's not simply, a, you know, our, our system has its trade-offs too. And maybe when those don't look like they're working anymore, we'll look at a different set of trade-offs and say, oh, I mean... We were told to be afraid of that, but look, here it's paying us a better pension, offering us a better job, giving us a better sex life if we're men, relieving the women of uh, a lot of the stress and strain of modernity, and uh, everybody appreciates everybody very much, and it's all very formal. And uh, So this, this novel about <laughs> Islamic takeover of France is, is bizarrely non-Islamophobic, or at least it's not Islamophobic in the way you expect. Is it, Katie, misogynistic? Um. I thought about that, but I, it, it definitely has a few moments where you might be thinking it is misogynistic, um, oh both God. in our character's <laughs> way of thinking about women. Did it have any moments where you didn't well, think no, that? No, you mostly are thinking it was misogynistic. <laughs> However, I feel that um, because he's so he's satirizing everything, it's, it's a little bit, I mean, as it is with other kinds of writers like Bello or Amos or... It's a little hard to really say he's misogynistic because I think he's so much satirizing this kind of misogyny, you know, that in a way, obviously, he's reveling it and enjoying it. But um, I, 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 I don't feel like you could say the book is misogynistic. Yeah, no, I agree with you. The book walks a knife's edge very skillfully that you can sort of. You can read it almost like a two si- a double, you know, a double f- directional mirror or something, whatever, you know, two way glass. That you know, sometimes you're looking at it as just like a treatise of misogyny, and other times you're seeing it as a satire, saying like, "Look, this is what all of this would require. This this only makes any sense in a world that's so appallingly misogynistic that, of course, you see through it." And then you look at it again, and you're saying, "No, he seems very comfortable with all of this." It's sort of like you know, Islam 
undermines the familiar exploitation of women to exploit women in a in a much more different, much more horrifying way. <laughs> and much more right. skillful. Right. <laughs> They're I better mean, at it. When he sees these child brides, he's initially horrified by by the uh multiple marriage and by the by the the teenage wives but then and it's sort of the the projection that he's going to accept it at the end is is a, is a bit of a uh device i mean it's not that he's in any way endorsing that the horror of that r- remains at the end of the book he never has he never actually has a single sentence that condemns it even remotely he's just it's condemned by implication that you as a re- and remember everybody in the book is a non is not born Muslim. I mean, in other words, when when I'm saying that, like the perspective of the book is they do it better or this, the Muslims are still even as I mean, he only converts at the very very near the very end, so they're they're always at a remove, and the people he's dealing with are academics from entirely his milieu and his background and his world who have all the same, none of their arguments are coming out of like deep Islamic thought. They're all like referring to Nietzsche and to uh, this and that French writer of the mid-19th century and certain kind of intellectual debates, Dostoevsky's, uh, atheists, and so forth. And they're not, there's nobody there who, I mean, the people refer passingly to the Quran almost to say you shouldn't bother reading it because you won't understand it. And so you really have a conversation between French intellectuals who you'd be talking to before, and French intellectuals who you'd be talking to afterwards. The only difference is that they've spoken a single sentence that makes them okay for employment at the Islamic University. Mm. It's like a loyalty oath. Yeah. They've agreed to sign on the, the whole thing. Yeah, yeah. It's, and, and, you know, it, it gets back. Yeah, it almost becomes a little bit like a, a not really like this book is coherently about anything that is recognizable as Islam. But the, the one, one admirable character is this girlfriend of his, one of his graduate student girlfriends, Miriam, who emigrates to Israel. And she is at least doesn't accept what's happening in France and gets out of there. Right. Right. Although not in a particularly heroic way. It's right. kind of like her parents say you have to come or you don't really have to, but you should. And she's close to her family. So she does. But I agree. She's she's a sympathetic character. And his relation to her is that he doesn't really care about her. She's not very important to him. But as soon as she goes, he he's she's not ass. there. He likes her. Yeah. And he and he's he's into um, sodomy. But I don't feel like that character is much of a character. Katie, how does this book help you understand the the world of Donald Trump, if it does? Um, there, There is one moment also we never discussed in the book about there's sort of violence or riots and killings going on and whole neighborhoods are before like burning the before the election. Right. But nobody's talking about it right. and it's not being reported. And it's almost like it's sort of rumored, but it's not there. And it did make me think about um, – the news and fake news and Hmm. the idea of like what is his sort of effort to even find out what's going on it's like you can't find out what's going on because it's not being reported straight in a straightforward way because of the politically correct media exactly and i think it does have to do with the way in which we slide into extremes and the way in which extremes are made palatable and the way in which like philip used the word adaptable um how adaptable people are and how um these kind of compromises get made almost like beneath the surface, and then all of a sudden you are in a totally alien place. And that doesn't feel to me so different from the world we're living in. 
obviously it's amplified and extreme and often somewhat cartoony, but it there's something about it that kind of uh, I do think does resonate with a Trump reality. Yeah, Philip had mentioned the plot against America, which does have that same sense of sliding mm-hmm. slowly into this horror. But, you know, the the frog being boiled in the water, which, of course, doesn't frogs don't actually do. But the sense that there's no one moment when there's a there's no you think there's going to be a civil war but with this violence. But then there's no civil war. No it's a very it's a very quiet coup. It's a very quiet end. To and, the society that and came some before. of them are like it's so like told in these details like the compromise about the education like they're gonna give up money in this place and then they're gonna agree that they'll have a little spirituality in their education. I mean, it happens sort of like it's this very extreme thing that all of the universities and schools are gonna start being teaching Islam, but it happens in this kind of convoluted and compromised and kind of like very political way, and uh, and it, it is it's kind of creepy. Trump's coming after the universities in his tax bill, right? Exactly. I mean, he's, he's, but that's, again, different because here it's sort of like the the intellectuals will do anything to kind of uh, – the intellectuals have no principles is kind of one of the ideas of this book. Yeah. They're just interested in their weird little subject and their professional lives. But that's the way he portrays it. Now, I also think that – I mean, to me, the connection with Trump is a little bit of the – he had – he was prescient that there were vulnerabilities in France – where he, what he didn't see coming was Macron, right? Mm-hmm. Macron was the surprise. And he assumed that in 2017, the front would do better and would be poised for the 2022. That's why this book coming out in 2015 yeah. um, was a sort of a sensation. Uh, also, the fact that it came out on the day of the Charlie Hebdo attacks in, in France just seemed like this bizarre mm-hmm. coincidence. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a coincidence. But the other thing is that Trump... Uh, this you can't it can't happen here blitheness that people just don't believe it and then when it does happen what people talk about now is normalization hmm. the sort of gradual um, that if things become so extreme you can't simply respond adequately to every level of extreme changes happen extremely fast structures you thought of as quasi permanent at least for the time being are requiring enormous evident violence to knock out a place, just kind of get washed away and dissolved and reconfigured very quickly. And um, most people accommodate to it uh, is the implication. Of course, he's not really talking about most people. As I say, it's like it really does become a very academic novel. There are about five people that he talks about. And every once in a while, he darts in and out of some other world, like his father dies and he goes to meet uh, his father's partner to divvy up the estate. And you get a little glimpse of a sort of bourgeois side world. But he also has this kind of image in those glimpses of rural France, of all these people play acting at being kind of um, folks of the land, right? His father is now a hunter and has mm. hunting evenings. His ex-colleague who uh, retires to the countryside starts cooking regional cuisine. Uh, you know, everybody's sort of posing as a kind of traditional Frenchman the way you could imagine a traditional Englishman <laughs> in like their barber jacket and their little fly fishing and shepherd's crook you know um and and uh and so there's this slight odd satire there going on of a a bourgeoisie that's enacting its own past but really doesn't have any sense of a future so trump reading list yes or no philip yeah it's worth a read i definitely think so and i go back to that quote about how impossible it is for this one half of the world who's prospering to imagine the other half that like looks upon the idea of everything falling apart without dismay, like that that concept, um, I think it's definitely worth it. Yeah, and I'm with you, Katie. I mean, I think it's um, 
it, it, the, the, there's something about the feeling of this book that feels like it describes something about the political moment we're in very well. And it's a book that just – it won't let you pigeonhole it. Mm-hmm. Whatever you mm. want to want to think about it, it eludes your grasp. It really and, does. And it's a great read. He's just he's just a very hard writer to put down. Mm. It is. Uh, well, I think that's it. So uh, for Philip Garevich and Katie Reifey, I'm Jacob Weisberg. Thanks for listening to the Trumpcast Book Club. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks.